Matthew chapter 3 this morning, invite you to open there. When I was in seminary, our best friends, um, Rod and Heather Fletcher, Rod was from Southern California. And so uh, during one of the breaks, spring break or something, Susan and I went out with, with Rod and Heather, and he showed us all around um, SoCal, and we ended up going to the taping of a sitcom. And I think the sitcom, I went back and looked it up online, I think it was some gosh-forsaken show called Grace Under Fire. I don't know if you ever, any of you ever watched that. But what was interesting and surprising to us is that when you go to one of these tapings, they, they usually have a pre-show. And in this particular pre-show, it was a comedian. And, and, and the job of the comedian is to sort of prime the pump, right? To get the crowd ready, to get them laughing. And I remember still, I've never heard someone so funny in all of my life, okay? And I've heard a lot of different comedians. Um, in fact, I still plagiarize this guy's jokes and count them for my own nonetheless, all right? In fact, it was so good, if we didn't know better, if I didn't know better, we might think this was the main act. This is, this is the person that we were here to see. And in a lot of ways, that's really what we have going on in our passage in Matthew 3 this morning. We get to meet a crazy wild man named John the Baptist, or as we will refer to him henceforth, JTB, just so you know we're down with John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist, here we find him priming the pump, preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah, and people are flocking to him in droves, and for good reason. We need to understand kind of what's happening historically here. Israel is a conquered people, and they have been a conquered people for over 600 years. First, it was the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and of course, now the dreaded evil empire, the Romans. Of course, this was confounded by the fact, not only were they an occupied people, an oppressed people, but spiritually speaking, it was radio silence from God. Spiritual crickets for the people of Israel for 400 years. There was no word from the Lord. There was no appearance, no prophet, no visions until JTB, right? John the Baptist but as we're going to see, he, he is no mere warm-up act. In fact, this is what Jesus says about John in John chapter 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty powerful statement. So if you ever get that trivial pursuit question of who is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? Is it Elijah? Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? None of those is John the Baptist. He is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's the vital link between what has come before and what is about to come on the scene. But John the Baptist is here to make the announcement that the long-awaited Messiah King has come. And it's after this pronouncement, as we'll see in Matthew's gospel, nothing is ever the same again. The course of human history is changed permanently and dramatically, not just for them in the first century BC 2,000 years ago, but for us as well. So we're going to read Matthew 3, 1 through 12. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we unpack this together. 
hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, this is a powerful message. It's a hard message. It's an in-your-face message. And in a lot of ways, it's spiritual smelling salts for us. It's to remind us that ultimately we have to declare our allegiance. Are we following and submitting to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Or are we not? Lord, show us this morning there is no middle ground, there's no ambiguity. There's no feet perched conveniently in two separate worlds. The call of the Baptist is the call of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us your grace now. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. There are three configurations of people in this text, okay? We have John the Baptist, we have the religious leaders, and we have the people. And in a shout out to Clint Eastwood in the spaghetti western genre, we're going to call them the good and the bad, and you guessed it, the ugly. And you'll find out why, so you have to stay for the whole sermon if you want to hear that part. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about the good. We're talking here about John the Baptist. It says, in those days, and this is, remember, 30 years since we last heard from Jesus. That, that's where we ended chapter 2. Jesus was a, was a young boy growing up in Nazareth. All has been quiet. It doesn't mean that nothing's been happening or that it's insignificant. I just think it means that there was nothing particularly outstanding happening. Jesus was just being faithful. He was living his life. He was growing in righteousness. He was being faithful and obedient to his parents. When all of a sudden, in those days, it, it's, it's like your, your grandfather or your crazy uncle who has that quiver full of stories for you every Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? They always are pulling one out of the, out of the holster. And what do they, and invariably, what does every story begin with? Let me tell you about, right? 
in those days when I was younger, and, and there's this sense here, in those days when, like a wild man, here comes this guy, and, he, and it says he came preaching. Out of the wilderness, and it, it's meant to be this stark contrast, everything is quiet. Now remember, everything had been quiet for 400 years. And everything had been quiet, in a sense, in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus, we're just waiting to see what happens next. It's 30 years later. And then, like a boss, out of nowhere, John the Baptist. And I have to be honest, as I read the description, his physical description, I, I really thought about all my next-door neighbors who were hillbillies in the mountains of East Tennessee. I really did. Rough, woolly, camel skins, leather belt, eating wild locusts. Now, I thought about that. I remember reading that book in fifth grade, How to Eat Fried Worms, which we tried to do, and it was just as bad and horrible as you can, as you can think. Actually, locusts were the only insect that, that the Israelites were allowed to eat. It was, in fact, a delicacy, but the whole point in Matthew mentioning this to us is he wants to tell us that John was living off the grid, John was living off the land. He was, he was preparing. He was meditating. He was, he was in training. And I think as the Israelites saw this wild man emerge from the wilderness and begin preaching this message of repentance, I think they would have associated John the Baptist, I think, with, with, with two things. Two things, I think, would have come to their mind. Number one they would have immediately said, well, that guy reminds us a lot of Elijah, right? Elijah lived in the wilderness. Elijah was a crazy man. Elijah didn't bathe for a long time, right? You know, th this, is, this, is, this is reminiscent of the fact that Isaiah came out of the wilderness, that he was preaching, that huge crowds were gathering up, that he was saying crazy things. In fact, the likeness was so uncanny John, in his gospel, tells us that the religious leaders actually asked him, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? And the, and the reason they were asking him that was what was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, the very last book of the Old Testament. What does it say there? God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven in the chariot of fire, and there was this prophecy that says, on the day of the Lord, when judgment happens, when God's kingdom will be established, Elijah is going to be the one who brings the news. And so they were asking him, are, are you Elijah? But the second thing that I think would have had pretty significant meaning for the Israelites in that time is that this figure, Elijah-like figure, in the spirit of Isaiah 40 is coming out of where? The wilderness. And it's the wilderness that had special meaning for the Israelites. See, the, is, the, the wilderness, that's where God led them when they came out of Egypt. The wilderness is where there was testing. The wilderness is where the law was given. In fact, you could make a case that almost the entirety of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, were all written, digested, read in the wilderness. The wilderness had special meaning for them. It was the place where God would oftentimes do amazing things. Appear on Mount Sinai, 
the cloud, the manna, the pillars of fire. Big things happen in the wilderness. And so this would have had everyone's attention. And it tells us that throngs of people were coming out from Jerusalem. It was probably about 20 miles away. They were coming out east to where the Jordan and the Judean wilderness all sort of merged there. And it was a national phenomenon. John's message to those coming out was very simple, but very profound. Look at verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This series, as, as you can tell up here on the graphic on the screen, uh, our series through Matthew is called King and Kingdom. Because these are really the two dominant motifs in Matthew. And when we talk about the kingdom, what we mean is nothing, and sometimes, by the way, Matthew will call it the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, or just the kingdom. In essence, what it means, it is a declaration that the king is now taking control. God is now imposing his sovereign, supernatural rule. The, the reign of God is breaking into the world of men. Now, on one hand, that would have really resonated with Jews, right? Because they were looking for someone to come and establish a political kingdom to release them from all these oppressors, politically, culturally. But what we find here that is unique about John the Baptist's call is that John the Baptist is not pointing to, the, to an outward political reality, he is pointing to an inward spiritual reality that Jesus is coming as the Messiah King and that he is to establish his reign and rule not just outwardly in the world, but listen, most importantly, in your heart. And that's where this word repent comes in. See, it's, it's one thing for the king to come if he's on your side. The last thing you want to do is be at odds with the king. And so there is this term, which if you're familiar with church, you've been here around a long time, it's a very familiar religious word, repent. Now, it is a military term. Uh, it means to go in the opposite direction. So if you, any of you got folks from military or in the ROTC or something, you know when, when the commanding officer says about face, you better get yourself turned around immediately, moving in the opposite direction. That's, that's the nature of what this term means. Meaning, if you're oriented this way, towards a life of sin, towards a life of unrighteousness, and now the king comes and he's ushering in his kingdom, you better get with the program. And so this, this idea of repentance, again, is, is a call to reorient the entirety of our lives to Jesus. See, that's the nature of this call. There is no ambiguity. There is no middle ground. There are no two feet each perched on either side of the fence. There, there, there's no sense in which, well, Jesus, here, here are the 10 areas of my life. I think I'll offer you these four. But these six, I still kind of want to call the shots you know, when it comes to those things. But here, this call to re repentance 
Guys, Jesus is making an absolute total claim as the Messiah King over your heart and over my heart. And John the Baptist's call is, when he says repent, it means align yourself with him. Align yourself with his values, his rule, his reign, his law. And the way that people would demonstrate that, in fact, they were repentant, that they were orienting, that they were confessing their sins, that they were wanting their hearts to be transformed by God, is they would mark their commitment to this coming Messiah with a baptism. This is where John gets his name, John the Baptizer, okay? And so next time one of our pastors does a baptism, you can just call them the baptizer, okay? Scott the baptizer. Sorry, Scott, we're just really picking on you today, okay? Did I mention? Never, never, never. We we won't go there, okay? Now, the word baptism, now listen, theologians have all these debates about, what's the mode of baptism? Is it sprinkling? Is it pouring? Is it this and that and the other? The word baptism means, okay, you understand what I'm saying? To immerse underwater, okay? That's that's what it means. People were coming out to the Jordan because there's a lot of water. They were going down into the Jordan because that's where the water was. And there was this idea that for, for, for the Israelites, this would have been something familiar, but yet something new at the same time, okay? And here's what I mean. We know from archaeological evidence and other things that there were a number of what we would call baptismal pools in ancient Israel. And they were used primarily for ritual cleansing, okay? Washing one's hands or washing one's feet. They had a, they had a, um, you know, a it was a health, there was a health factor, but there was also this idea of being ritually clean. And so when people would go to the temple, they would wash in the, um, in the baptismal pools before they would go in and worship. It was a sign of being, again, ritually accepted by God. So, so, so this idea of, of water would not have been foreign to, to Jews. But here's what was different. Here's what was different. John wasn't just asking the people to wet their hands, or their feet, or their foreheads, or their heads. He was asking them to immerse their whole body. Why? I think it was because it was was symbolic of the idea that people's uncleanliness, please hear this, my uncleanliness, your uncleanliness, and I don't mean hygienically, I'm talking about spiritually. I'm talking about our sin. It's more than skin deep. It's more than merely outward. Sin has, is something that has infected our whole person, our whole body, every area and nook and cranny of our life. When we talk about being totally depraved, it doesn't mean that you and I are as bad as we possibly could be. That would only happen if God lifted his spirit, right? What we mean by being totally depraved is that there's not one area of your life or my life that is not in some way infected by, by sin. And what, and what John was doing, having people do here, it's not that the water literally removed people's sin, right? Otherwise, why would John be calling for repentance? 
Why would people be confessing their sins? We know there's nothing magical per se in the water. But what it did, it symbolized the spiritual work of cleansing that God must do for the whole person. Outward conformity, ritualistic obedience is not going to cut it, right? This, this is a baptism that symbolizes the cleansing, the regeneration of the whole person. It symbolized the spiritual work of cleansing that God must do in a sinner's heart. And the people would have well understood this. Church, just remember, before we move on to this point, all of us are in desperate need of that. Whether we realize it or not, part of my prayer this morning is that God would open your eyes, my eyes, anew to the fact that we just don't need a partial cleansing, we don't need a moral reform, we don't need a new set of resolutions, we don't need a new set of goals, we need a transformed, renewed heart that only the Holy Spirit can provide through Jesus. Now, this, what I just said, was so controversial to the religious leaders that it sparked this series of conflicts and debates with John the Baptist. And this is where we're going to move to point two, the bad. Now look at verse seven. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John. This is the equivalent of saying the Democrats and Republicans are uniting for the good of the world, right? Okay, that's, that's sorry, independents. You didn't make it into that one, okay? But, but the Pharisees and Sadducees, while they ruled together, were on totally different ends of the political spectrum, the theological spectrum. They argued about everything, the resurrection, eternal life, et cetera, et cetera. But they were united in this one thing. Something fishy is going on out in the wilderness. You see, the religious leaders weren't just priests, okay? We think about that like the pastor, the priest has his little area of domain in the church and does their religious things. Remember, in ancient Israel, the ruling leaders sanctioned everything, all religious practice, all um, religious activity, the temple, the synagogues, the training of the priests, what you could do in your homes, what you could do in the city, when you could buy, when you could trade, when you can work, when you could sell. They, they were the ones who sanctioned all of the teaching. And so when word on the street was that there was this Elijah-like crazy guy out in the wilderness preaching this repentance and this baptism, and that the people were coming out to them in droves, they had to go see what was going on. Now, it's very interesting the way Matthew describes this. It says that they were coming to his baptism. Please understand what this means. They weren't coming to be baptized. They were coming to evaluate. They were coming to critique. They were coming to observe, to survey, to, to pass intellectual and theological judgment to, to rub their, I'm sure, very voluminous beards, right? And say, hmm, what is, this, what is this man doing? But one thing is for sure, they weren't there to get baptized. Why? Why would they? They're Jews. They're religious leaders. They're the spiritually elite. They're God's chosen people. They, are, they, they, they aren't under wrath. Only the Gentiles are under wrath. 
They weren't in need of repentance. After all, we are children of Abraham, and that's what we are banking on. Now, it's interesting. John the Baptist would have been an interesting cat to invite to your dinner, right? He's just the guy who calls the baby ugly. Now, there's no ugly babies in Four Rugs. I totally get it. But this is a man who had no personal, interpersonal inhibitions. And he greets them with what? Fare thee well. No, you brood of vipers. Now, what is a brood? A brood is a gathering. A brood is a herd. A brood is a crew. A brood is a pit. Vipers are poisonous snakes. He says, who warned you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the coming wrath? When you think about brood of vipers, I think about all you Indiana Jones fans. You know, Indiana Jones, the fifth movie, is coming out, all right? And I'm camping out already to buy tickets. So anyway, there, the, you see these pits of, of snakes, these asps, these cobras. And what's interesting about them is they're not just biting and devouring those who happen to fall down into the pit of vipers. They're, they're fighting and devouring each other. That's what snakes do. And this completely and in every way describes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were those who devoured the people of Israel. They preyed on them. They manipulated them. They battled with one another. Anything they did was for a motive to be seen, to be observed, to receive accolades. What is Jesus? We're going to get to Matthew 23, and it talks about the seven woes that Jesus calls down upon the religious leaders. They were a corrupt bunch, and it's very interesting what John the Baptist says to them. He knows they are not there to conduct spiritual business. This is why he addresses them the way that he does. And he says very specifically, look back at the text. He says, don't say to yourselves that you are children of Abraham. He knows their mind. He knows their heart. He says, God can raise up stones. Now, this is an interesting play on words. When you don't know the original language, it's hard to see this. But the word for children and the word for stones are almost identical. One is banim. The other is abanim. And so he's essentially saying, don't, don't say that you're benim. God can raise up abanim. That's kind of what he's saying. It's a, it's a play on words. It rolls right off the tongue. Now, when, when he says that, when he says, don't claim to be children of Abraham, he's reminding them, your lineage gets you nowhere. Just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham... And know that your daddy's daddy's daddy was this um, and this and that you inherited this great righteousness. His point is saying it doesn't work that way. And, and, and that's a great reminder to us, right? Particularly those of us who have gone to church our whole lives, raised in Christian homes, raised in Christian families. Conversion, regeneration, repentance are irrespective of lineage and descent, while there are many, many incredible advantages to raising up, being raised up in a Christian context and what we have here, none of them guarantees your salvation. 
Only a repentant heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. So this is both, listen, an indictment and if you see it, it's a grace, what he's saying to them. The indictment, of course, is what we just said. Don't you know who you are? You're not here because of you. The people of Israel did not save themselves. You're just, as Ezekiel 37, a pile of dry bones. You're just a pile of rocks that God has given life to. And unless God is the one actively transforming and saving, that's what you would always be is simply rocks. So on one hand, it's an indictment. But on the other hand, it's also an offer of grace. Guys, judgment, biblical judgment, is always intertwined with the mercy and grace of God. Because what does John the Baptist tell them? He says, you, I know you're not here to do spiritual business. I know your hearts are corrupt, but I'm going to call you to it anyway. Anyway, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's just a, it's just a little reminder that God can give life to anyone. No one is beyond the reaches of the grace of God. I know that many of you have stones in your life, whether it's parents, spouses, children, friends, people maybe who at one time have professed faith, who've walked away, who have a hardened heart, and you've been praying for not just years, maybe decades, lifetimes for some of you. And, 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 and you grow despairing because we, this person still has the, the spiritual heart of a rock. They're hardened to the things of God. And this is a reminder, is it not? God's grace can change anyone. So keep praying, keep hoping, keep persevering. It's God who gives life. God can give life to anyone. He gives life to anyone who has a repentant heart, who comes to him confessing their sins, which is, in fact, exactly what the people were doing. So let's look at our last point, the ugly. Now, let me try to explain what, what, what we mean by what's ugly about this, okay? In verses 10 through 12, what Matthew does is he describes the process and dynamics of spiritual change that happen in the heart of the person who's changed by the Holy Spirit. And and he uses two metaphors, one of which is probably real familiar to us, a second which is maybe not quite so familiar. And these two metaphors are the axe and the winnowing fork, okay? And, And the reason we're calling this the ugly is that while the results of the axe and the winnowing fork is ultimately to produce a harvest of righteousness, is ultimately to produce a harvest of peace and a transformed life. It is, make no mistake, a difficult, painful process. And guys, guess what? All heartfelt change always is. I heard a pastor say once, if repentance was easy, everybody would be doing it. It's true. Even repentance is the gift and the grace of God, but yet through this ugly, shall we call it, difficult process, God wants to do a work of grace. Let's first of all, let's talk about the first metaphor, 
the Acts. And the point here, I think you get it because it still works this way. We're still familiar with this now. The Acts is either great for cutting off limbs to a fruitful tree so that it grows all the more, or an Acts is useful for cutting down a tree that's already dead. It's one or the other, right? So it's that time of year where we do what we call around our house crepe murder. Is anybody doing crepe murder this year? Okay, yes, okay. You, you guys know the crepe myrtles. I mean, they're like a disease. They're like the gremlins. You cut them back. You put water on them. They always come back. And it doesn't matter if, even if you cut them down to the nub. It's like they take that as a personal challenge, don't they? And they say, I'm going to come back even more glorious than when I started, right? It's, it's an interesting paradox, the way this works, right? However, if one of your plants or trees died in that recent cold, do you remember that thing? It was colder than Wisconsin up in this place. I mean, it was, it was brutal and a lot of your stuff died. You don't go prune it. You cut it down. You get rid of it. That's the whole point. And what he's saying is that that's what the Word of God does. It either cuts, it always cuts, but it will either cut for death or cut for life. Now, let me, let me put a pin in that. Let's keep going for a second. Because then he brings up this second illustration, this idea of pruning or the pruning fork. And here what we're really talking about is, is, a, is a pitchfork, Okay. The process in that day of how you would separate the chaff from the grain. Now, this past week, we've been walking through our pastoral devotionals in anticipation of studying this passage together. We've been studying this passage all, all week. And I tried to lead us in a discussion in those devotionals about winnowing, totally forgetting that we have a resident farmer in our midst, okay, Vern Iverson. Now, now, Vern was born and raised on a farm in Iowa. So instead of counting sheep trying to go to sleep, he counted stalks of grain, right? And he reminded me of what, what was actually involved in this process. He says, the thing that takes five minutes now with a big John Deere, okay, would take inordinate amounts of time and labor then. You would pile the harvested wheat on the floor and you would get this pitchfork and you would begin tossing this this wheat in the air over and over and over again, hours and hours and hours. And what you were doing is that you were, you were attempting to separate the chaff or the outside or the stalk, the stuff that's not good to eat, from the grain, which is what you wanted to preserve. And so by the time this process was done, you would have a big pile of grain and you would have a big pile of chaff. What would you do with the chaff? Well, you would do what a lot of you rednecks do with your live Christmas trees on, on, on New Year's Day, right? Now, if some of y'all are still going artificial tree, I don't know if we can be friends, but let me do that. That's another point. We try to get our real tree up as early as possible, July, and down as soon as possible the night of Christmas, right? I mean, it, I mean once the gifts are, it's over. It's all it's done. But here, here's, here's our family ritual. We love to see how long it takes from the time we take our dead Christmas tree and lay it on the road till somebody comes and snatches it up for their New Year's fire, right? And if you've never seen this happen, I mean, it's usually like hours, right? It's usually like hours. 
And if you've never seen this New Year's Eve tradition where people pile dozens and dozens of Christmas trees and set them on fire, go on YouTube. It's, it's, a, it's an amazingly glorious sight, but don't do it at home, right? Don't, don't, do, it, don't do it on your house in, in Killarne Estates or whatever. That's what they would do with the chaff, right? They would, they would set it ablaze and the blaze would be glorious. Now, now, how does this apply to us spiritually? Why is John the Baptist using the axe and the winnowing fork in this way? They are both, if, if, if you want to use these terms, the axe and the winnowing fork are God's word. And what God's word does is it cuts. What God's word does is it sifts. That's what God's word is intended to do, which means there will be one of two things that happen after God's word gets a hold of you. Either it will prune and convict and pierce your conscience and your soul and evaporate all of the dross in your life through the power of the Spirit or else it will come and find dead wood, and it will burn. Guys, fire, and you, you should know this, fire is always a metaphor in Scripture for what? For judgment. And, and, and what, what John the Baptist is describing is what has to happen for every person on planet Earth. They have to be confronted with the claims of King Jesus, they have to consider what it means to be his rule and reign. And guys, that's a painful process. It's a painful process to yield, to submit. Now, it's a glorious result, but it's a painful process. But here's the thing, there's always pain. There's just a pain that leads to life and a pain that leads to death. That's what happens when God's word through the purifying work of the Spirit goes to work in our lives. Here, here, here's the real question as, you, as we wind this up. Who are you in this story? Are, are, are you the crowds who, because of your, your desperate need for grace, you're understanding your brokenness, you're understanding you're just a stone, you understand really who you are and that apart from the grace of God, you have no hope. And the blade cuts deep and the fork sifts. And as a result, a harvest of righteousness, of grace, mercy, and forgiveness is yielded in your life. Or you're one whose heart is dead. It is hardened and when the word of God, when the, when the knife, the sword, the winnowing fork goes to work, there's just nothing there to work with. And it's consumed in judgment. It's actually a, a really terrifying picture when you think about it. But the whole point is that it will do one or the other. And on this side of heaven, by the grace of God, Matthew is giving us this text and saying, who were you? Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to turn to Jesus. I know you're a stone, but there's hope for stones. 
There's hope for hardened hearts. There's hope for wasted lives. Why? Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mightier means superior. John says, I'm not going to do this work. This work comes through Jesus. Trust in him. Look to him. Submit yourself to him. Church, none of us can escape the winnowing, the axe, the fire. And by God's grace, that is true. Pray that, and I pray for you, pray for me, that we will have hearts open and receptive to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things that we need to remember is how this happened. And this is a good little meditative thought as we come to the table this morning. Jesus was, of course, the Messiah King, still is the Messiah King. But how is it that he made a way for our sins to be given, for that fire to erase our sin and not erase us. How did that happen? It's because the Messiah King also came to die. Do you realize that Jesus was sifted for you? Do you realize that Jesus received the fires of judgment, of righteousness from God the Father on your behalf? Do you realize Jesus was cut? Jesus was sifted? Jesus took on everything that you and I deserve so that we could know him as our Savior.